Well, good morning, Two Cities Church. Glad to have you here with us in the room. Out there in the lobby, we see you. Glad to have you online. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to continue our sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians called Christ, Culture, and Church. Because we know that the word of Christ uniquely speaks to our culture, but it uniquely calls out and calls up the church to live out and show and share his gospel where we find ourselves. So today we're going to be hitting another difficult topic because life is difficult, right? So we turn in, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, hitting a complex issue in 1 Corinthians 7 because guess what? Life is complex and we are complex creatures. Any number of different pieces and parts within us, any different desires and thoughts and imaginations and whatever else, and it can become difficult and even dangerous when one of those pieces becomes the whole pie or one of those parts becomes the whole thing. When one thing becomes the main thing. There are a lot of any number of different and, and ridiculous ways I can show up in where you find yourselves. I'll tell you how it shows up in my life. One thing you should know about me, it's important, is that I am from the great state of Tennessee. And that one thing, nay, that very important thing, can become all important, can become a monster, specifically the place of Tennessee football. It took over my life, literally. I painted my room growing up, Pantone 151, the official orange at the University of Tennessee. And that unique passion, when it comes head to head with the broken world that is Tennessee athletics, <laughs> there are difficulties. Yes, every loss still hurts. Thank you for asking. <laughs> and yes, it's uniquely even dangerous. I'll tell you, I was still in Nashville, so a few years ago, which was more years than it is. A few years ago, um, our team was playing Florida in the swamp. We had a chance to win for the first time in forever. We had a one stop, third and long. That's all we needed. And not only did we not stop them from getting the yard to gain, but we gave up a Hail Mary. In between four defenders or whatever else reached up with the ball, we let them catch it and then run for a touchdown. Wind going away. Hopes and dreams dash before your eyes. And you may not understand this, but I'm telling you, rage, <laughs> inner, inner rage takes over. Like, I have got to get out of here. And so, like, for my sake, those around me, I'm heading out the front door just hoping to let off some steam, right? Unbeknownst to me, my neighbors are Florida fans. <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, my neighbor's wife had been watching with a rooting interest to let me have it and had seen me walk out of the house. And so when I opened that door, she opened hers. And when I stepped out fuming, she started yelling. Started letting me have it. What do you think about that? Started doing the gator chomp. I'm telling you. <laughs> like nails on a chalkboard. And I remember in that moment, as the rage is rising, I'm like, Lord, years of prayer for this family. <laughs> years of intentional gospel witness is about to go out the window <laughs> because of my love for Tennessee football. Tony, it can be ridiculous when it's something like that or whatever your thing is. I don't know, a hobby or a sport or a something. It can become pretty dangerous when one thing, namely our sexuality, becomes the main thing. In the church, we can sit around and bemoan that the culture, right? The culture puts sex at the center of everything, and it does. 
But I'm afraid that even in our own lives, we begin to understand ourselves and understand the world. That one thing has become the main thing. So that we gauge our value by what relationship we're in or we're not in. That we found our identity on what desires or passions we have or we don't have. And not only out there, but I even feel in fear from the pulpit that our churches haven't been able to help. Because I fear that when our churches are influenced by culture and think that sexuality is at the center, we don't know what to say to marrieds or to singles. To marrieds, it's like, you made it, congratulations. You're in a relationship that involves sexual intimacy. Good luck. You have all you ever wanted. And we don't know what to do to, to pull you out of the blah routine that comes with kids and career. We don't know how to speak clearly and directly to the unique challenges, frustrations, resentment, even bitterness you feel in your marriage. And to singles, I fear it's even worse. If the church puts sex, sexuality at the center, then to singles, we preach the gospel if I'm sorry. Single guys, I'm sorry. You're not going to be fulfilled until you're married. Single women, I'm sorry. You're not a whole person. We're praying for you that maybe one day you can find your forever husband and finally be whole. Not to mention older singles or singles again. It's like we don't even have a category. It's like, well, law of depreciating numbers, maybe you should give up hope. And not to mention same-sex attracted persons that are wrestling with desire, trying to live in line with biblical morality. It's like, to you, it's like there's no reason to even have hope. I'm sorry. The Apostle Paul is saying something so radically different. It's hard for us to even hear him. He's saying something so radically different than what we think or feel and see and hear. It's hard for us to understand what he is saying. Because for Paul, something so transformative has happened that it changes everything. That God's kingdom has come in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ changes everything. Yes, even what is most intimately about us. He changes everything. So let's go to the text today, this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 to 17. And may we all be transformed by the word of God. Here we have in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should, not, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, 
And the unbelieving wife is, what is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Amen. You see, what Paul's doing is he's hitting a big picture context. Paul is saying that in the big picture, there are really two competing realities, if you will. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. There is the city of God or the city of man. Or as we're talking about the series, there is Christ and there is culture. And the challenge for us this morning is to be transformed by Christ, even what we, hear, we hold most dear and most intimate to our lives, to not be influenced by culture, though we understand ourselves, our sexuality, our relationships, but to let the kingdom of Christ and who he is transform us even down to that very depth of a level. So what I'm going to do is we're going to talk to both, married and singles. In God's mind and his eyes, in the biblical picture, there are really two options. Either you're married and that involves sexual intimacy, or you're not, and that does not. And so what Paul does is he hits both, he hits both in turn. So that's what we're going to do. Take it one at a time. And if you're there, don't check out when we're not talking to where you are directly in this point at your life. So this may not be where you are now, but you could be where you are then. And we need to know and we need to hear for each other. Because we, need to, we are a family united together. So we need to know how the word addresses each person within the family of faith. So marrieds, we'll hit you first. Marrieds, very simply, fundamental truth I see from this passage is that God cares about your sex life. Marrieds, God cares about your sex life. See, in chapters 6 and 7 in 1 Corinthians, I think what Paul is doing is he's hitting the two extreme views of sexuality. Because in chapter 6, as Spencer preached on, in verse 13, he hits one extreme. He's quoting somebody. He says, quote, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. Just like Spencer reminded two weeks ago. That's the extreme that says sex is not a thing. It's not important. It's not different. It's just another physical desire. Are you hungry? Eat. You got an itch? Scratch it. Sex is not a thing. But here in chapter 7, he seems to be addressing the other extreme. See the quotation marks again? He's quoting somebody else. Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It seems that this church has written Paul a letter and it seems that in that they had quoted that. And it seems they may have taken things a little too far. It's like, no, church people taking things too far? It's unheard of. <laughs> yes, it seems they have. It seems that they're like, wow, well, if sex is not a thing, maybe it's everything. If, if the culture out there is saying sex is not important, maybe it's all important. Maybe it's big, maybe it's dangerous. Maybe that's what we need to flee from. So it, it appears they're teaching within their church are you married? Don't even touch your spouse. Stay away, right? It's such a big, scary thing. Don't even do it. Get away from it. We may laugh at how silly either options are, but I fear that in the church we can have both extremes, that sex is either not important or it's all important. It's not a thing or it's everything. 
and both of which we are finding, lead to sexless marriages. The Atlantic had an article not too long ago, not a Christian news source, had an article not too long ago that the United States is in the middle of a sex recession. So statistics bear that 10% of couples have not had sex within the past year. 20% of couples report less than 10 times a year. And it is the minority of married couples that have regular rhythms of intimacy. Maybe that's news to you, or maybe that's not news at all. Whatever, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, guess what? The Word of God speaks directly to you, that God cares about your sex life. Wherever extreme you find yourself. So maybe you, you say, you know what? Sex is not really that, a big, that big of a deal. It's not really that important. I mean, you say, like, let's be honest, Pastor. People are busy. We're tired. Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> you become, maybe unintentionally, just sexless roommates raising kids or sexless roommates with separate hobbies. You may say, you know, I think it's good. I think it's a good thing that we don't have to have that as a part of our relationship. It's like the Corinthian church. It's a good thing not even to touch your wife. But the Lord tells us what's good in, in Genesis chapter 2. It is good for a man not to be alone. See, sex is created by God. It's a good gift given to us from a loving father for a purpose. Think about the beautiful picture in Genesis chapter 2. When the Lord forms woman from the side of man, what happens in sexual intimacy? The two then reunite in one flesh. What was separated has now been able to join together in a unique intimacy Beautiful unity, giving and receiving with freedom and joy. I get it. I know sex itself does not propel a healthy relationship, but it is a visible picture of the uniqueness of the marriage relationship, and it is a natural overflow of a healthy rhythm in relationship. It's kind of like a fountain in a pool. I had a friend growing up at a fountain, right? And there's sometimes that fountain would stop working. Right? And that pool was still beautiful. That pool was still able to be enjoyed. That pool still made all the neighbors jealous, wishing we had a pool. But when the fountain's not flowing, something's disconnected underneath the water. And it's the same way with our sex life. Sure, it doesn't, um, again, it doesn't propel a healthy relationship, but it's a natural overflow. And look here in verse 5. God cares about this part of our relationship. He says, do not deprive one another. God expresses his unique care and concern through his commands. And guess what? This here be a command. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again. Even prayer is not a good enough excuse to stay apart for long. Do not be more spiritual than God. See, something unique is going on the intimacy between a husband and wife. You can find friendship at work. You can feel warm and fuzzy feelings with your children. You can find companionship with a dog. But sex is a unique opportunity to uniquely express the unique intimacy between a man and a wife. There is both in sexual relationship pleasure and protection. Look there at the end of the verse 5. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Don't stay apart. 
Because in a healthy rhythm of relationship, there is even protection. Listen, we know sexual sin will destroy other people. We see it in the news. We see it in our friends and whoever else. We know that it can tear apart families. We know that it can destroy relationship, destroy ministries, destroy life. We don't think about it for ourselves. What's a primary defense against sexual temptation in marriage? A good offense. So take it seriously. Because I fear in church, so often Christian marriages are living different lives. We split apart and we have time with our different kids, with our different hobbies. We come together under the same house, but sure, we're sitting on different ends of the couch. And then we finally sleep on different sides of the bed. Too much time side by side and not enough time face to face. The challenge for each and every married couple in this room, care about your sexual relationship as much as God does. So maybe that means for you that you need to put screens out of your room. You know, the, the natural rhythm, right? Just to stare at a screen until you fall asleep. Charge it somewhere else. Maybe it means you need to put kids back in their own bed. And I get it. There's there seasons and times and sickness and whatever else that maybe, possibly, yeah. But literally, you're putting someone in between you and your spouse. Maybe you need to work hard at work so you're not bringing it home and, and staying up late and kissing each other goodnight and then one, one person's working. Or maybe you should sit down and schedule time together just in, to enjoy each other. And yes, that, it, that may involve intimacy or it may just involve the enjoyment together. Care about your sex life as much as God does. That's the challenge to marrieds. But for other of us, married couples, we may know that sex is important. In fact, it has become all important. That this topic, this conversation is uniquely fraught emotionally. That even me starting to begin talking about it, you feel the burden. Kind of the weight of guilt that you're not where you should be. The weight of shame because you don't understand why you're not where you should be. And the weight of frustration. Um, as a New York Times article, again, not a Christian publication. They're, they're reading the same thing. New York Times article put it this way. The longer a couple stays apart, the more it begins to weaponize the bedroom. It adds complexity to marriage because resentment compounds like a high interest credit card. Maybe you know this to be true. That because sex is not happening, it's taken over everything. Because it's not there has become a monster. And it's more of a struggle than you ever thought it would be. It's you're afraid, more afraid to talk about with your spouse than you ever expected to be. There, there's more shame than you really even know what to do with. We should not be surprised that what God cares about, Satan and sin will seek to destroy. We expect demonic activity. We expect spiritual warfare like in the movies, right? You've seen the, I don't know even what the, the most recent exorcism movie is. I feel like every three, three years they're coming out with a new one. We expect people to like be like levitating and like regurgitating like black stuff and head spinning and whatever else. I'm like, that's how it works. What Paul's saying is there, it can even happen in the ordinary. As one old pastor put it, when you're dating, the devil wants to do nothing more than to get you into bed together. But when you're married, he wants to do nothing more than get you out of it. You should not be surprised if God cares about marriage or whatever, that Satan and sin will uniquely try to hit at that very point. We see that in the garden, don't we? Because we know that each step along the way 
the husband and wife relationship was affected. Where there once was a beautiful unity, now they're biting at each other. They're struggling for control. Where once was this reciprocity of giving and receiving, now they're turning away from each other in like a weird passivity and hiding. Where once was freedom and joy, now there's, there's shame and there's covering. But a Christian marriage transforms each in turn. Look at verse 2. Because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Instead of a struggle against each other, you struggle with each other against temptation. Not as a burden on one side of the relationship or the other. It's usually it falls on the wife, right? You can hear, you maybe have heard someone in church be like, it's your responsibility to make sure your husband isn't tempted. That's not what Paul's saying. See how he addresses both? And even in verse 3, he pushes it even farther. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. A radical affirmation of both persons in the relationship. There's no power dynamics within marriage. No power dynamics in the bedroom. We're not talking about submission and authority. We're talking about a mutual giving and receiving. And instead of a passivity turning away, it's talking about uniting together with one another. Marriage is the willing giving of yourself to another. And that takes time. That takes time. We mentioned exorcism movies, but just in general, we need to figure out that Hollywood does not show us what life is really like. It's a business. You know what movies do? They try to figure out what your unrealistic expectations are and then give them back to you so that you will give them your money. They're trying to give you your unrealistic fantasies so that they can get rich. We see that clearly in sexual relationship. We may find, and we should, when you get married, you find you're not marrying an ideal, you're marrying a person. And people are complex and people take time to get to know them and to grow together in unity and intimacy. And sex is not always easy. You have to learn to love your spouse. Sometimes you're dealing with physical considerations. Sometimes you're dealing with emotional baggage. Sometimes you're you're dealing with differences. And sometimes there are differences in different seasons. But it's a healthy process of learning and growing. Listen to verse 5. A healthy rhythm. Do not deprive one another. But if you decide to stay apart mutually, then come back together again. Instead of shame and covering, there is just freedom in simplicity. These types of verses make us like blush, right? Because Paul is just like, bam! Paul and our grandparents, they feel like they're the only people who can talk this openly about stuff. You bring your, you're like, you're, the person you're dating to a family dinner, you're like, Grandpa, like, don't talk about that. <laughs> there is freedom in simplicity and straightforwardness. There is nothing wrong, Paul is telling us, with speaking openly, even quote unquote, practically. Because the reality is, stereotypes, but often they hold true, men don't want to ask for help, women don't want to ask for intimacy. Guess what Paul's saying? Open the door and talk about it. So maybe you're asking me even practically. Pastor, how often should married couples have sex? Get your pens out, right? Get them ready. I'm not going to tell you, so I'll just rely on other people. Martin Luther, the famous reformer. Love Martin Luther, right? He said, quote, 
Every three days should keep the devil away. There you go. There's a clinical psychologist, our day and age. This psychologist noted that the people he's working with, that oftentimes issues begin to arise when it dips below weekly. And they may not be big issues, but just things begin to arise. I'm not saying those, those numbers as like a legal standard and a burden to, to, to bear. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to kick the door open so that you can begin to think and to discuss clearly about it. So often, this topic becomes like a, a closed and locked door in our relationship. So let's just let the Apostle Paul set the charges and let me kick it down so that when you're driving home, when you're sitting, you can talk openly, straightforwardly, and simply. Because it's healthy for sex to not only be a regular, normal part of a relationship, but even conversation. It's one thing, but it's not the only thing. It's an important thing, but it's not all important. It's a good thing, but it's, it's not a God thing. Find freedom by putting it in its proper place. But if we're seeking to live according to the Bible, there's a whole other group of us we haven't even talked about, isn't there? There's a whole other group of us that are not having sex, that are not in a, a relationship with sexual intimacy. In the eyes of God, remember, there are only two options, married and single, more or less, right? But because we've been too influenced by culture, we really, I feel the burden. We failed our singles because we try to figure out who you're dating every time we talk to you. Who are you dating? You're like, oh my gosh. We try to, we try to figure out what's wrong with you right? What it could, what's possibly wrong with you that you're X amount of years old and still haven't found somebody? Or we join with your well-meaning grandmother and begin to pray for you. We're praying for you. <laughs> if we think sexuality is at the center, then for singles, we just have a gospel of I'm sorry. But Paul is not saying that. In fact, he's saying like the exact opposite. You reading with me? Verse six, it seems to be that he's saying marriage is a concession and not a command. Verse seven, it seems that he is saying he wishes all would remain single as he is. Verse eight, he is saying it is good to remain single. And then outside the text we read, but in verse 38 toward the end of the chapter, he says one who marries does well, but one who refrains from marriage does even better. It's fascinating reading the commentaries on this passage. They really struggle. Like either Paul doesn't really mean what he's saying or else he's talking to a very specific time and place because obviously he can't mean that singles are on the same level as married people. But for Paul, something big has happened. Something transformative has taken place. Christ has come with his kingdom and it changes everything. To singles and to all of us, Christ changes everything. The goal is to have for us a biblical theology of marriage. It sound like a big term. It's really not big. What it, what it means is you want to take the whole Bible whenever you think about one thing. What's your one thing you're thinking about? Well, look at the beginning, not just the beginning. Look at the middle, not just the middle. Look at the end. Look at the whole thing. Put that one thing in the middle of the whole thing. So often in church, we begin with a garden, man and wife, one flesh, and we pretend like that's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. There's something and really someone that changes everything. In fact, Jesus, the one, tells us something shocking about the end of all of our stories. He tells us that marriage is temporary. He tells us that marriage is temporary. You know, we think that marriage is God's design for everyone for all time. Listen to country music the other day on the radio. Somewhat newer song out there. 
They're singing in. He wrote a song for sweetheart, right? Like you should. Either you're singing about your truck or your dog or your sweetheart. <laughs> singing about a sweetheart, and he said, you know what? Heaven's going to learn that some things last forever after all. And that's what the religious leaders of the day, Jesus' day, are thinking. That marriage is forever after all. And so this group of religious leaders, the Sadducees, trying to ask Jesus an impossible question. He said, Jesus, there's a woman who's been married seven times and widowed each time. Who is her forever after all husband? Who is the one man she's going to be united to forever after all? What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 22? He answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they, being us, neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Our sexuality cannot be the most important thing about us because it won't be forever. So marriage can't be the goal of our entire existence because marriage is only temporary. As one Christian author put it, Christian marriage is designed to disappoint. That man and wife, even at the beginning, was to point forward to something else or really someone else because marriage is a shadow of the love of Christ. Look at Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. We love it. We read it in ceremonies and whatever else. When he's talking about marriage, he says, this mystery is profound. We're like, darn right, Paul. Marriage is hard. How can a man and a woman who are so different come together? Love is profound, isn't it? That how can love quench and fire roar? What is he talking about? No, he's saying the profound part of marriage is that it refers to Christ and the church. What is profound about the one flesh union is it was supposed to point forward to, from itself all along. It was supposed to point us to Jesus Christ. It was supposed to be a physical living out of his love for us. That it was given for him. Think about the unity in marriage. It's supposed to show us that in salvation, Jesus has show, so united us to himself by his spirit. That as Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 15, our bodies are members of Christ. In verse 17, that he who is joined by the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's even greater than one flesh, isn't it? What about the beautiful reciprocity of marriage? It's supposed to show us our Savior who takes our sin and weakness and gives us his spirit of life and power. As Paul reminds in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 6, we were bought with a price. We are not our own. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You talk about joy and freedom that Jesus Christ calls us fully and finally out of our hiding and covers our shame so that we are, chapter 6, verse 11, washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. When we are in Christ, we really and truly get a taste of the end. What is the end? Well, the end's a marriage, but it's not ours. It's not between us and our earthly spouse. It is between all of us as the people of God who are in Christ with him, with the Lord. Look at the end in Revelation chapter 21, giving us the vision in ways we can understand what eternity will look like. And it gives us in ways we can understand like a marriage. Look at this. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's us. That's the people of God. And what do we, we do? We will be united and dwell with 
God forever. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with him as their God. And look at that beautiful intimacy forever, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Paul, toward the end of this chapter in 1 Corinthians 7, says the, almost the exact same words in verse 31. He says, the present form of this world is passing away. See what he's saying? When Christ comes, he has begun to renew the world through the church so that what is true in the end has already taken hold and it is growing so that our present understanding of everything is passing away. Because in the end, there's only one marriage, and it's not you to your spouse. The whole world, all those that are in Christ are in, united in an undivided devotion to him and unity by the Spirit. And guess what? Paul is saying that singles uniquely are living that reality right now. Because everyone will be single in the end. But if you're single now, you're tr really and truly experiencing what will be everyone's fully in the end, the new reality being in Christ, united to him by his spirit with an undivided devotion on mission with him. Singles, married, either one, was always supposed to point to the overarching truth that we were created for the love of Christ. So, singles, this means you don't have to be married to be a healthy and a full person. Look at the full picture. I fear so often in the church we only look at one part. We look at the beginning and pretend like Jesus Christ hasn't come. And so we treat singleness like it's a sin. There's one tweet the other day I saw. This person's trying to helpfully line up all the places of grief in our world, but it's unhelpful. And this is why. He starts listing it, bullet pointed. When you're in the NICU, when the cancer is back, at the graveside, in singleness, grieve, trust, and take the next step. Singleness is not like cancer. Singleness is not like death. You may be grieving, truly. But if you are single, the Bible says you are not outside of God's design. You are not half of a human being. Paul, who is penning this later, letter, is himself single. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was single. So the goal for every person is not a spouse, but a Savior and his church. If you are single, or even if you're married, you don't need a spouse. You need Christ and his church. That's what all the Bible is pointing us to. You're out there and you're like, well, it's easy for you to say because you're married with kids. You've got what I want and what I can't get. But it's not me saying it. It's Paul. And to be honest, it's hard for me to say it because I can only imagine uh, the difficulty and the struggle and the, and the pain and all that comes with it. But Paul has no place for the gospel of I'm sorry. His understanding of both marrieds and singles has been radically transformed. That if we understand ourselves in Christ and not from our sexuality, no matter where we find ourselves, we can see both as a gift. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. He says, I wish all were as I myself am. He wants us to be single. But what? But each has his own gift from God. 
one of one kind and one of another. If your identity is in Christ, you'll be able to view both or wherever you find yourself, either married or single, as a gift. And you will seek to leverage both married or singles to make disciples. So singles, the challenge for you is to not focus on your pain, but seek the purpose. You may be asking why, and that's a fine question to ask. Just turn it in a different direction. Not like shaking your fist at heaven like, why God? But a, a purposeful question. Okay, if this is where I am, why? Why am I here? And the reality is, as Paul tells us later in the chapter, singles have a unique capacity and clarity for gospel ministry. A unique capacity. The reality is, you got the space and the time to go wherever and whenever you want to go there. It's true. Your devotions are not divided. Your, cl your clarity in mission. Look at, uh, at the end of the chapter. It will be on the screen, but it's in your Bible. If you scroll down or look over. In verses 32 through 34, what Paul is saying, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. A married man is anxious about how to please his wife. And a married woman is anxious how to please her husband, so that their interests, they are divided. Paul's challenge to you is don't listen to culture and waste your singleness by waiting to be a real human. Find your identity in Christ and use your capacity and clarity for his kingdom. For marrieds, it's almost like Paul in this text is worried that, that, that people are going to want to get divorced. Look at verses 10 to 11. It's almost like he's, he's painting this vision, this picture of a reality in Christ, and he's afraid that, that you're going to like run away from your spouse. Like, to the married, I give this charge. He's like, don't leave. Don't separate. Instead, where do you find yourself? Leverage it to proclaim and to show the gospel. Don't drift into the blah routine of career and kids. The way you love your spouse should be a living picture of Christ's love for us. Don't spend time side by side. The way you unite together is supposed to uniquely show the bond that Jesus Christ has for us in his spirit. And don't be divided by guilt and shame and resentment. The way you grow in increasing intimacy and unity is to show the world the love and the joy and the freedom that is ours in Christ. Even if, Paul says, you're, you're unequally yoked. Look at that, verses 12 to 16. He even goes down to that level. And he's saying, listen, I get it. If you have come to faith in Christ, you know, this side of your marriage, or even before and whatever else, if you find yourself living with an unbeliever as a spouse, I get it. Unique pain, unique worry, but what? If they consent to live with you, may you leverage that situation for your relationship with your spouse to show and to share the love of Christ. And what does he says? Never give up. Who knows, Paul says, whether or not the Lord will use your relationship with your spouse to lead them to salvation. During our baptism Sunday, we were able to celebrate a number of new life stories, one of which was a man who was baptized and a family that's been transformed because of the new life Jesus Christ has bought, brought by his spirit. But guess what? 
His wife had been uniquely praying for years. Spouse, listen, who knows? Show and share the love of Christ and watch him work. No matter where you find yourself, how are you pointing forward to Christ's love for us? There will only be one marriage in the end. And Paul's challenging us to live like that now. This is a unique season in the life of our church. And we are praying. All of us are joining in prayer together that we will be healthier than we have ever been. Let me tell you, the church is never bigger than the people. And for the family of God to be healthy at two cities, we have to have healthy families. And guess what kind of families we have within this church? Marrieds and singles. So both are called out and called up by Paul to seeing their lives transformed by the gospel. Marrieds, what gospel is your relationship with your spouse preaching to your kids, to your friends, to your family? A side-by-side relationship or one of increasing joy and unity? Singles, what is your life showing and sharing with your friends, with your family, with whomever? That we are a half person and all we need is Jesus plus a spouse? Or that the gospel of Christ has an otherworldly sufficiency? Church, we need each other. We need to join together with open homes, with open lives, married and singles united together in the family of Christ. And we need to see how together We need to see how Christ transforms everything, even down to what's most intimate in our lives, even our relationships, and yes, even our sexuality. Let's pray together. Father, we do not want to be influenced by the world. We want to be transformed by Jesus Christ. Father, any number of us find ourselves in any number of positions in this room. We pray, Father, that you would turn our eyes from our circumstances and turn them to your son, Jesus Christ, and to see in him what we're created for so that we can live wherever we are, so that we can live and we can share and we can show of the all-surpassing greatness of salvation in your son, Jesus. Change us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.